So I'm back with Matt McGregor for another look at the week's acquisition headlines. And we'll start off here with some China watch. China's new stealth drone, the Feilong-2, already ahead of U.S.'s B-21 stealth bomber, Chinese experts. And this is from the Eurasian Times. Quote, the Xi'an-based drone maker's multi-role high subsonic UAV could be used for precision strikes on key assets such as enemy command centers, military airstrips, and aircraft carriers. The Feilong-2 or Flying Dragon-2 could also be used with a swarm of drones to carry out reconnaissance and surveillance, a saturation attack, a damage assessment, and it added, compared to the U.S. American aircraft, i.e. the B-1, the Chinese stealth drone is much cheaper to produce with a longer life expectancy. I think there is a little bit of take that with a grain of salt from probably the sources that a lot of this stuff is coming from, but I just wanted to stack it up quick to a Wikipedia assessment of the B-2, which I'm assuming is fairly relevant for the B-21 since we don't have those specs yet, but the B-2 relative to the Feilong-2, the B-2 is 11,000 kilometer range for 7,000 for the Feilong, a payload of 20 tons versus six tons, 1,000 kilometers an hour top speed versus 780 and a 50,000 foot ceiling versus 49,000 feet. So really the B2 there has a decent advantage in terms of range, 57% greater, more than three times the payload. So the payload is, is a big factor there. And then 28% greater speed and comparable ceilings. So what's your thoughts there on, on this kind of new discussion of China's new stealth bomber and it's a UAV and China's mainstay, of course, has been the H-6, which was introduced in 1960s, but they don't really have anything newer to replace that until, I suppose, these new developments. Yeah, I think, yeah, I, I like, like you said, pretty skeptical of some of the, some of the characteristics there. The, maybe that is realistic, given some of the things you compared them to. And I'm sure the, they've been working on aviation advancements for a while, so they probably have figured out some of this stuff, but to do... To build a platform like the B-2 or the B-21 is, I don't think, I can't imagine they're there given all of the years of, of experience and research and all the things that have gone into it on the U.S. side. So yeah, pretty skeptical, but I do, I, I guess if you think about the two different types of missions that they would envision, like what the U.S. needs it for and what the what, what China would need it for, it makes sense, right? The U.S. one is going to be much more capable, much more long range, have a lot of, a lot of additional capabilities because it's going to have to fly long distances, going to have to go you know, into enemy territory and be survivable and, and be able to accomplish its mission of taking out mobile targets or whatever it is. So that that is invariably going to be a much more complex platform versus that where China probably needs this is just to get into, into the region to be able to survive enough in the region to take out maybe some key American assets or allied assets that would maybe shoot down some of their their other uh, aircraft. So maybe they would use this in a way of taking out some of the SAMs or something that might be in Guam or uh, Japan or something like that. So you could see their capabilities are going to be much less. And so it makes sense that they'd be able to do it for a lot less and it would be cheaper. The B-21 is going to be really expensive. I saw one price tag that a squadron of 12 would cost about $14 billion, and, and that's quite a bit cheaper than Super the B-2 was. Yeah. Yeah. The B2 was about $2 billion in aircraft. So this would put that 
this would put that at quite a bit less, but still you're talking over a billion dollars in aircraft. So yeah, I would hope that given the more limited China mission, they would be able to get it, get it cheaper than that. But yeah, I guess we'll have to see what they come up with. Oh yeah. And the B-21 also, you know, has a nuclear capability, which it doesn't sound like China's using their drone for that, which is good. <laughs> but yeah, you add nuclear kind of capabilities to a bomber and that that raises the cost and requires all kinds of other, all their features. So yeah, yeah. I guess this isn't all that surprising when you look at it in totality. I guess the figures that I had originally been seeing coming out was everyone was promising $500 billion a bomber in FY whatever dollars that was. And then people were like, oh, it's actually going to be cheaper. We can do it better. And now you're saying we're going to, that's really blown out of the water. I don't think we have a selected acquisition report or anything on it, but that, that was a little bit surprising to me. And that price may have been the differences, right? The the unit cost versus recurring flyway cost versus the the cost with EMD built into it. So yeah, so that may have been that may have been like the puck versus the A puck cost there. But still, not a cheap platform, but however you measure it. And yeah, five hundred million would probably be a really good price. We'll see <laughs> and what that comes out with. Yeah, they're saying like at least then your dollars in the. For the B2, it was like less than a billion dollars in recurring costs. But if you're quoting 14 billion for the first 12, and we can deduce backwards what EMD versus the production might be, but that really, that's an unfair if you're just saying the puck for 12, a buy of 12, when really they're looking at something closer to a hundred or what was the, I don't remember what the, the, the exact number was, but I know David Deptool was like, let's double whatever it is. I think he wanted to get to yeah. A hundred, I think that was hundred. Yeah, they had a hundred, but they've. I think the Air Force has come out and publicly said that they think they need more than a hundred. Probably something closer to two hundred, but yeah, probably that'll be a tough sell. I think. But. It seems like you'd almost want to potentially separate out some of the nuclear capability if a lot of it, what you want it for, is to to take a whole bunch of small diameter bombs or whatever it is into theater that might be a separate aircraft and a or, or a different variant that might be cheaper in one way or another. Maybe it's not cheaper at all to do it that way. I'm not really sure. But just to stick on this for one last second, I'm just interested in your thoughts because it seems like US loves to do these kinds of like optionally manned or like manned, but potentially not manned in the future types of things is my understanding of the stealth bomber. But then you also have the Army's OMFV and maybe some of these other things. So should the stealth bomber, the B-20 have just gone all in on, on a UAV, or is that a separate program? And I'm not really tracking what that is. I think the nuclear piece kept that from ever being seriously considered, but I, I think you'd have to, if you did that, though, the other piece of it, you, you probably would not want to put an aircraft with all the advanced capabilities and with the, like the, the stealth, like all the advancements that, that are probably on the B-21. We don't really know that much about it, but all those advancements that you could probably imagine, you probably would not want it to be a UAV just in case there were like calm issues or something, you, you lost positive control of the aircraft. So I think it'll probably be a while before those type of exotic platforms are unmanned. I think there would just be too much fear that something would happen for you not to have control of it. You want that man in the loop. But also when you get into the nuclear stuff or the fact that you're dropping dozens and dozens of bombs on a target, sometimes you do want that man in the loop just to like double check and make sure and make sure you're not bombing a city or something. So you might, it might be a while before we go full UAV with all the bombers. Yeah, I just fear that China has no kind of compunction about that sort of worries and they would just experiment headlong into the Fei Long. <laughs> I'm not even sure if I'm saying that. F-E-I-L-O-N-G, Fei Long, Fei Long, 
the fly. No, no, you ask your friend Jordan. I, he probably knows. <laughs> so the next one here on the China Watch scanner is uh, Chinese soldiers are using virtual reality to do cheaper, more frequent training with missile systems from the, again, South China Morning Post. You can practice launching without an actual installation. You can practice tactics without leaving the base. A standard missile launch exercise involves thousands of personnel. Large pieces of equipment need to be transported to a training environment, so frequency is limited, the report said. But the virtual training ground means that all this can be simulated so soldiers can use it and train much more often. Again, here's another instance of China just leaning forward, in this case, for virtual reality to, to inform training. And of course, the U.S. has been doing similar stuff for a long time in terms of like maintenance and, and certain things like that. But this seems to be at like a much broader scale and, and operations too, instead of just more business and build functions. Yeah, I, I think this is this is definitely the future, right? For for militaries, because as you get for one, as you get more when you get into the electronic space, you don't always want to like practice real world with things that that may be capabilities you want to keep a secret and that could be picked up from various intel assets or something so i think this is going to become fairly common there are a lot of efforts underway in the u.s military to get after this i think the joint simulation environment is a big one they're they're really pulling all kinds of different pieces together to try to replicate the threat environment and be able to have different joint forces working together towards a common towards a common mission and, and doing it all simulated. So I think there's some good stuff underway. I just did some quick searches and there are things like the common synthetic training environment in addition to the joint joint simulation environment. There's like common architecture reference that's being developed. There was like a an OT award. I guess it's almost two years ago now, but it was for the synthetic training environment the, or the yeah common synthetic environment for the army to allow units and soldiers to conduct realistic multi-echelon collective training anywhere in the world. So they're doing lots of things in this space. I think the simulation, the whole challenge is is really tough. Is a really tough one because it's just getting part of it goes back to what we've been talking about before, Eric on data is getting all the data in the right places so that you can actually make these systems smart and be able to work, have all the features and be able to work together and, and interop. So I think once we solve some of these data issues, I think that the training or the simulated training environment will probably become a lot easier. So I don't know. That's Yeah. So on that note, there's a, cu- a couple articles here related to data. The first one here is free the data vice chiefs launch an acquisition crusade from Defense One. And this kind of follows up on something we talked about last week. Quote, Heighten and the J-Rock will try to push pen- the Pentagon away from so many hard requirements and towards something more of a framework. They want the services to have more leeway to build things and tests as they go, as software companies do, rather than setting hard goals that cannot be changed if they become obsolete. By mandating a framework, a few core things, Rather than a lot of little requirements, Heighten hopes to shave months or years off the process of getting new programs approved. So this, again, is this framework here is supposed to be for data requirements to ensure interoperability and such that you can enable these kinds of joint force operations, the JADC2s of the world and all their equivalents. I'm just wondering, like, what's the difference here between a framework and a requirement, right? Do you have a picture in your mind of what he means by that? Yeah, I think what they're getting at there is today when, when a requirements document goes through the whole JSITS process, 
they typically will look at what are the joint information needs. I think they call them joint information requirements. And so they will, that will dictate some of the standards that are applied. And this kind of goes back to started with the old gig back in the day, right? The global information grid and net centricity. And, and now it's, it's morphed a little bit, but it's along those same lines of let's look at all the different DOD architecture views and make sure that this data can talk to that or can transfer to this this platform and this platform can talk to this platform. And they try to connect all the dots between all the different things that might need to talk together. But I think in this article, I didn't actually said it right. He said, I'm glad that he said we wanted to get years off of it, but he said later in there, he said, a lot of stuff we add as we go through or the joint interfaces, the services have to meet. So that's the big piece of what the JSIS process does now is identify those joint interfaces. And then it says, oh, and by the way, we always get them wrong because we don't know 10 years in advance what they're really going to be. I would argue it's a lot less than 10 years in advance. It's just, there's so many data sources out there and there's a lot of good work towards unifying that with the unified data library and other things that are in ABMS and, and those other JADC2 efforts. But I think the idea that the people in the joint staff will be able to understand all this and be able to come up with the, even a framework that ties all this together, I think is, uh, I'm a little skeptical about. I think the stuff that is already going on with the JADC2 architecture, I think they should let that play out. There's already a lot of efforts there to come up with standards that are minimally invasive, but that allow allow those, allow that data transfer with the right permissions, with classification, all the other stuff. So I think they should just watch what like BlueStack or the companies like BlueStack are already working on before they come up with some joint staff framework that they start locking, locking into programs and in their, in their, in their, in their requirement documents. Uh, I would just, I hope they do this slowly and they don't rush into it and start mandating a bunch of standards and, and things like that maybe don't play well with the stuff that's already going on. So I guess that's my one concern. Yeah. It's the, the return of the big bang approach. And that's the fear of the most. So yeah. I need these standards. So I need to pre-approve the standards and get global consensus and then we can go. But that's, that's the opposite of the agile principles. And it's hard for me to imagine things going back through the J-Rock process to be turned out faster. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm looking for speed. So I'm going to the J-Rock for that. Like how compared to the other acquisition pathways, let's just say I'm a program on software acquisition or middle tier acquisition pathway. Does the J-Rock get back into my kitchen with some of these, with this framework? And if I, they call it a framework, it's not a requirement, so they can still you know, get back in. Or how do you think that's going to play out? They already do have a play. So if you're, if you're a, a software program or really any kind of program that has joint information requirements, you can get pulled into the JROC process and, and have some of these mandates be applied. So right now it's more around the DODAF views and the, the those kind of standards, the net centric standards, but I think this framework could just become a new way of doing that, but have a lot of the same similarities in terms of having to anticipate all the different interfaces. And I think I would revert back to what Heighton said is we get it wrong. So maybe like you said, we shouldn't centralize that, that mandate instead, let some of these other things play out that are already going on to see how it, uh, see how it works. Yeah. It feels like instead of being the central planners of that, they should be the centralized investigators of what everyone else is doing yeah. and then move their way towards that kind of unified view of the world in an incremental fashion. And I guess it's the difference between looking at the world and saying, you shall follow these directions versus 
airing everyone's views and coming to a collaborative point. You had another article there that I, not to jump ahead, but you had another article there about the services choosing their own paths for JetC2. And I think this is like a very military centric mindset about how to deal with a problem is that there's this fear that because you cannot clearly articulate it in one common, in one quick update, it means it's not going well. And I think General Crawl is probably doing whole thing that that mentality is like military, it's just a military instinct. And yeah, I hope we can figure out a way to keep the flexibility while also being able to communicate progress. And I think that's probably the overarching challenge here is JADC2 is so messy, but we're, we're doing good things without people trying to lock it down. Yeah. So let's just get right to that one, which is services choose independent paths for JADC2. Yet all these independent efforts bring up the need for overall JADC2 strategy. Quote, we don't have a particular leader that appears more valuable than anyone else. He, Lieutenant General Dennis Crawl of the J4 and CIO states. But while all of these on the front edge are exciting and welcome, you might imagine without discipline or direction, we could find ourselves a year or two from now in some very different, with some very different kits that no longer would, in my view, contribute to a common approach. So yeah, the article is actually nice because they touched on a little bit each of the services and in, in their own direction in the JADC2 or multi-domain operations kind of thread. But I guess they're taking a little bit like the Navy is just looking to stitch together existing things with existing ways. The, the Air Force might be creating a little bit of more of different tools in order to do that themselves. It's not, I guess it's just not clear how many different things are being created. Even in ABMS, it's hard to keep track of what were all the experiments that everyone has done and what has been fielded and what has not been fielded and where is that whole thing going? So I'm sure from the outside, it looks like a whole ton of stuff is going on. It's not sure. It's not clear how it all comes together. Does it have to come together in a way that we can all specify right now? Or do you think they can negotiate their way there eventually? I think unified data platform, the unified data library is what I would revert to. And maybe it's just because I've had some, a little bit of exposure to it is I think they are tackling this in the right way, which is to identify ways of whatever the data is or whatever system it's coming from is to find an easy way to modify that interface so that it can be shared in a permissioned environment, but without going back and redoing, like having to make massive changes to the system to make it work. And they've been finding a way to do that. And I won't pretend to understand all the details of of how they're doing it, but they're already stitching together a ton of stuff. So I think the Navy's approach of at least starting small and saying, what can we make work together now with a minimal effort? Let's show some progress. I think is probably good because it, there'll be a lot of learning there. And I think there's still a lot of learning with the Unified Data Library too, but they've moved out fast and they have a lot of different things talking to each other that did not talk before at multiple class of classified environments. So I think there's a lot to learn with some of the things that have already been done. I, I do think the architecture though is going to evolve, right? It's going to take, it's going to take iteration. It's going to take the services trying to doing some exercises where they have to play together and see how this, their different approaches work together. So I think they should just show, instead of trying to centralize things now and come up with later on in that article, they're talking about having like sub-objectives and OPRs to assign to the sub-objectives and blah, blah, blah. Uh, Instead of that, I would just, let's hold some exercises and, and try some things out. What ABMS did with the off-ramps and see, see where the gaps are. But I think there's a lot of good stuff already going on. They need to really tap into From my point of view, why isn't it just, I need open APIs and data rights to the data? <laughs> why does that just not solve all the problems? And I can always 
go back and stitch things together in different ways using stitches <laughs> or something <laughs> else, right? Like why, like as long as I just, as long as the APIs are documented and the I have rights to the data. So once it goes on the service, serve like a contractor servers, it's not their proprietary data now and spits out with their proprietary markings. Like, why is that not the answer? Is there, there must be something much more complex going on there that I don't understand, but. I think there's all, I think there's just so many different systems. I think that is part of the approach with that, 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 that BlueStack is using for, for the EDL, but I think each system has to be looked at individually because there some are in just different legacy configurations and it's, it's easier for some than others to, to do that. So I, I think it's, I think it is one of those things where you have to work through this. There's a lot of, there's a lot of pain involved, I think in this whole effort where you just have to, you have to figure out like what things you want to, you know, go after first, like what data is most important that you, you need to get into other places that it doesn't go to now and then work through those. And then you learn things and you improve your architecture. And I, I just think they're going to have to iterate on this for a long time. And I don't think there's one easy answer, but I think what you said there is, is probably right. Is that's the ultimate goal. That... Yeah, I guess the, the problem is maybe that works well in some future architecture of only future stuff. But like I'm dealing with a whole bunch of legacy stuff where I don't have rights and interfaces yeah. are not well defined and a lot of data is muddled because it was it wasn't a services oriented architecture. So it's, it's that thing of DoD just has a ton of legacy stuff that they have to carry along, and it's just really hard. Like that kind of migration costs. It's really hard, and it sometimes it's just easier to start fresh. <laughs> That's what the market does, but we can't just start fresh with our force structure. Yeah, that actually made you made a point about the data rights. I I am still really struggling with this. I, I read some article over the weekend. I forget exactly where it was, but it was a, it was around that that one of the challenges is that contractors are saying they own the data, which to me I just I, I I have to see an example of it. They didn't really give examples, but I have to see an example of that where there's some operational data or some system data that that they're saying the government does not have rights to. That just sounds crazy to me. So I'm really intrigued to learn more about what's going on on that front, because I could see how you could say that the technology, there's some proprietary stuff, or maybe you don't own data rates to a software application or something, but to say the data is not the government's, I don't know. That one's, that one sounds pretty crazy to me. Wasn't Alice the poster child of that on the F? I don't remember that it was a, we didn't own the data, but maybe, I, I don't know. And that was one of the causes of Odin to go to the the cloud, like a government owned cloud, because like when it went back to when all of Alice's system data went back to servers at Lockheed, supposedly because Alice had some IRAD, it wasn't clear exactly who owned the data. And then it was coming out with Lockheed proprietary markings. And then that stopped the government from being able to use it in the way that they would like. Oh, I believe that. Yeah. But there's a lot of overmarking that's done and stuff. I would have challenged that. Actually, I read some article recently about F5 intellectual property, where the government's asserting that they have a vast amount of intellectual property, but guarantee you Lockheed and some of the other vendors probably would not agree with that. Yeah. I think the government, one of the things that the government does not do, and this is maybe something we could talk about some other time, but I think it's a longer discussion, but is they don't challenge, like they don't challenge things up front and they let things lag on where they they allow markings to stay on documents or they allow things to be, you know, designated as, yeah, we paid this with IRAD without kind of verifying that. And, and then you're at the end where years have passed and then it's a lot tougher to challenge it instead of in the moment. And then there's also precedent. So then I think in court, it's going to be 
it'd be interesting to see how it goes, but it's a lot tougher if you don't challenge it up front. And then later on, you can say the government accepted this for years and years, and, and now you're trying to go back. So yeah, probably need to get better at that. It's becoming a big deal when uh, House Armed Services Committee Chair Adam Smith just recently at an AEI event was talking about, we need more data rights for this, that, and the other. And I think <laughs> a lot of that was actually coming out of their recent F-35 hearings. But mm. let's move on here. Something similar, but uh, different here. Fleet exercise includes live missile shoot as Navy pairs cruise with unmanned systems, USNI News. Quote, several unmanned or autonomous systems are participating in the exercise, according to Third Fleet. The medium displacement unmanned surface vessels, Sea Hunter and Seahawk, the ultra long flight endurance unmanned aerial vehicle called Vanilla, MQ 8B <laughs> Fire Scout, and MQ 9 Sea Guardian UAVs, Ocean Aero Triton class dual modality underwater surface autonomous vehicle, and an Office of Naval Research Super Swarm project. So these, of course, went with a, a bunch of other ships, including LCSs and destroyers and cruisers. But it was interesting, <laughs> just the number of things that were going on in this exercise. And then Navy's really, because there's another little article that we have here on a different exercise. So the Navy's really going out with experimental exercises at scale. And a number of these, actually a couple I'd never heard about. Vanilla I it was a UAV I hadn't heard about. I had to look it up. Yeah. It's a multi-day, three three day or more multi-day flights for persistent ISR, multiple payload bays, and over 100 pounds of modules, attributable low cost, um, and it's built by Platform Aerospace. I thought this Seahawk was funny as a unmanned surface vessel because there's obviously the Seahawk, the helicopter as well. So that's a little bit confusing. And maybe one day the Seahawk UA. V will deploy a Seahawk UAV potentially. <laughs> I don't know. But any thoughts here? No, yeah, I I loved everything about this article. And it's funny because I had seen a DARPA brief like ages ago about they had done a lot of work on these unmanned surface vessels, the things that could be used for logistics and for kind of moving moving munitions around or whatever. So that it was you could have things in different places to, to support an operation, but it's good to see that they're actually, I didn't realize if they had actually been deployed operationally. So it sounds, it sounds like the Navy has made all kinds of strides here on the UAV and the unmanned front. This is awesome. <laughs> it sounds like the Navy might be the, the first service to really figure out how to, how to, how to have active manned forces operate in conjunction with, with autonomous forces. So this was, this is pretty awesome. The idea of exercising unmanned wing, unmanned command and control too is interesting because I think that's one of the pieces that we don't really seem to talk too much about is, yeah, you have all these autonomous platforms out there. How do they work together? Do they synchronize with each other? Or there is there some, is there some battle station back on the ship that manages all these individual platforms? So I've always been interested to see how like the tactics and techniques and procedures play out for that. I hope they... They write more about the outcome. We're um, just let's see where things work together, where things don't. One of the other things that I really liked in this article was the fact that he said, uh, the admiral there that, that was running this, he said, we need to move things into the hands of sailors and let sailors use their ingenuity. And it's bringing in some of these younger troops and saying, yeah, how do you think, how do you think we should employ these? Uh, what TTPs would you use for this? And I bet they got all kinds of incredible ideas from these, from these younger younger sailors. So yeah, this is one I hope they do a lot more of and yeah, and show the Army and Air Force how to do it. 
Yeah, I sometimes wonder where they, I guess all the funding comes out of O&M, but it seems so often you're just so strapped to get the maintenance done for your vehicles to, to get them deployed that there's not money left over for these large scale exercises in terms of actually doing things that, you know, more than just like for show, like doing live fire exercises as they were doing here and ISR type things and, and all sorts of stuff. I think you just have to budget for it though, right? You're right. There's always like readiness is always going to be an overwhelming priority, but I think you just, I think this, I think these things are, are becoming so important that if we don't, it's like back in the uh, cold war, like we spent so much money on flying hours because we wanted our pilots and Israelis do this too. They, they you want your pilots to be the best and have everything be almost instinctual. You're going to, they're going to have to fund. I think the services, as we get more into this unmanned manned teaming, I think they're just going to have to do more of these exercises and, and budget for it appropriately, because I, I just don't think there's a substitute. Maybe we'll be able to get the simulation environments where we can do some of this digitally, but yeah, it seems to me like there's no substitute for, for this kind of thing. So hopefully they'll keep budgeting for it. There's no substitute, but there's always opportunity costs in terms of actual True. mission around the yeah. world. So yeah. but let's just jump over to the next one. Ny Nywick, NIWC, Atlantic advances new technologies at Nice Antic. And so let's just break that down a little bit. The 10-day naval <laughs> integration in contested environments, Nice advanced naval technology exercise antex or ant x one of the navy's largest participations in antex to date naval leaders selected roughly 65 technologies the majority of them from private industry assessors gauged each capability while observers envisioned relevant eabo slash dmo scenarios in which each product could be used so there's a little bit more jargon, Expeditionary Advanced Base Operations, EABO, and Distributed Maritime Operations, DMO. So here's another one, and this is a very, this is a, a different one. They've been running these Antex experiments for a long time, at least for the last few years, to my knowledge. And it's just really great because they're like onboarding new technologies. It seems different than the last one we're talking about, where it's somewhat more mature technologies integrating them into an operational context here, it seems like they're just experimenting with whatever technologies come to the table and then allow to see what that might integrate into in terms of a major capability. Yeah. It seems a little bit like, yeah, it's almost like a broad agency announcement where it's like, you, you know, you provide some problem sets and it's good that they focused. They actually gave some focus on the, the types of things, the capability areas they're going after. But I think it's similar to what ABNS is doing too, where you put some calls out there to the commercial sector and say, hey, we're trying to do command and control better. We're trying to do domain maneuver better. What solutions do you have? So it's really good to see that they got so much so much interest there. 60, 65 technologies, most of them from the private industry. Pretty, yeah, this seems to me the way to do it, right? You get the interest. So you, you know that these companies are actually interested in doing something with DOD and they're not just, just giving a, an RFI or response or something. Uh, they're willing to actually bring their capabilities out and show them and go through some scenarios and see how it works and have the, the SMEs there, the engineering SMEs on the government side actually look and say, oh yeah, that, that works. That, that looks like really promising. And yeah, this seems to me to be the way to inform. We, we talk right about like tech scouting and how do you inform program managers of things that are out there in the commercial sector? Cause they don't always have the time to go do this stuff and to, to engage with every single private sector uh, vendor. But this to me seems to be super informative for all those program managers out there that maybe were, maybe had challenges in some of these areas. And now they have 65 
potential vendors to, to go tap into. It seems great. I don't think there are 65 vendors. Some of those are organic capabilities and some of them might have, Raytheon sure. might have a couple out there at the same time that's true. or whoever it might be. Yeah, not 65 vendors, yeah. But still, it's that I think that's the right way of doing market research and then feeding that back into requirements, which is always so important. So let's move on to another one of your domains. The Space Force selects Boeing Northrop Grumman to develop jam-resistant communication satellites from Space News. The PTS, Protected Tactical Satellite, prototypes will be evaluated by the Space Force as possible solutions for its next generation secure communication satellites that over the next decade could supplement or replace existing systems like advanced extremely high frequency AEHF satellites that are currently used for classified level communications. So Northrop Grumman or Northrop Grumman Boeing and Lockheed were in the first phase. Lockheed was dropped from that and it's now just Boeing and Northrop. And they're actually going to plan to launch into space in 2024 an on-orbit demonstration. And then SMC, this was something interesting for me. SMC said, a full and open competition is planned for the next phase of PTS, the details of which have not yet been decided. So that doesn't really make any sense to me for some, okay, they started with three, they necked it down to two for a full-scale kind of prototype. And then I suppose just straight up production is right after that or an EMD phase with one you know, competitor. But having full and open competition, like who's going to compete? I guess Lockheed Martin might have a bunch of IRED and want to recompete into that. So maybe they're just leaving the door open for Lockheed Martin, but I don't see who else is going to play here. I don't know. They could they could use the GPS model too, where they they allow Boeing and Northrop both, both to produce, or maybe do a proposal. I've always liked this and I wish, I wish, I know it's like sometimes more, more costly to do it, but I really wish that we would do more of it where you have two 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 vendors win and you do a competition for the the, the next production lot say for five satellites or whatever the initial plan is and then whoever comes up with the best proposal gets maybe three of those satellites and the loser gets two of them and that way you keep competition alive throughout the throughout the whole as you're building up the constellation i forget what the constellation is on this but so i don't know i don't know if that's the plan or if they're just going to down select to one and just go with that but but yeah this is this one actually, I before I left the Air Force, that was one of the earlier middle tier programs that did prototyping. So uh, I was always really impressed by their strategy, and it's good to see that they're making progress uh, towards towards the next stage, and uh, that they did some. Sounds like they did some good prototyping, so that they could do this evaluation, do a down select, and hopefully they'll be able to take all that learning and actually get it into start producing these things soon. But yeah, yeah. sounds like this is the way we should do things in space. I guess it's interesting. Lockheed, to my recollection, was the one that has been performing on AEHF. And the numbers of AEHFs were, when I was there, I think we were at like six. It can't be more than 10. So it it's just, depends it's on just how- if, if they're going for like a proliferated architecture, how expensive each one of these things will be, I guess. And that's some of the question, right? If these are going to be like big satellites, we got that Russian satellite with a robotic arm <laughs> and various other means for or I think that was the Chinese instead of Russian, but they have various means of disrupting these. So they say jam resistant, but they're not kinetic resistant. <laughs> if there's only six or eight or 10 of them, it's worth taking not a couple missiles are, out. And not too many things are kinetic resistant. Yeah. So they, yeah, they look like they're, yeah, they're doing the on-orbit demonstrations. 
What if you put the them. active on? I, okay, so this is something I heard from the Merge newsletter. I'd recommend our audience check out the Merge from a couple of great guys. But they were talking about putting active armor protection on aircraft. And we've seen that kind of been working or not working for like tanks. But what if you put active armor protection onto satellites? There's a lot less clutter out there. It might be easier <laughs> to get it done. You, you would definitely drive up launch costs because every ounce, every ounce increases the uh, the cost of launching. But yeah, I think you'd probably get some pushback on that. But I'm just throwing that out there. Uh, so let's move on to the next one here. Air Force moves past drawing board on avionics, computers, and other technologies for sixth gen fighter for military and aerospace electronics. It had been largely conceptual for years, but the Air Force officials now say current prototyping and demonstrations are informing which avionics and other technologies will the service will invest in for the future. Senior Air Force officials have said that an analysis of alternatives has been completed and that work on requirements is in progress. Work includes various modeling and efforts to explore crucial hardware and software for onboard computers. So it's interesting that they're moving forward there. Analysis of alternatives has been completed and work on requirements is in progress. NGAT has definitely had nearly a billion dollars a year for the last few years and $500 million roughly a little bit before that. So they've been able to do quite a bit of experimentation ahead of these requirements and AOAs that have been wrapping up. And I guess that's part of the whole market research and experimentation feedback into the requirements. Wasn't clear to me though. Is the analysis of alternatives and requirements specifically for the avion? Is that going to be like its own kind of potentially yeah. common subsystem, and then you build hardware around that, or are there multiple alternative analysis of alternatives, or is there just like one big one for all of NGAD? It doesn't seem like they're talking about NGAD as a family of types of systems that are evolving. It's, it'll be interesting to see how they work that through because usually the services, or at least the department, likes one big analysis of alternatives finish your requirements and now you go get money and now you go rent, right? Yeah, that is interesting, especially on the requirements piece, because I, I didn't think we were there yet with NGAD on like, you're actually doing official requirements. So I found that intriguing. Of course, who knows with this program, this is, this thing has been so classified and, and I don't know that anybody really knows what the plan is. I always thought that what would come out of NGAD would not be a single aircraft or a single platform. I always thought it would be like a, highly modular, different pieces that could play to meet different mission sets. And so you might have like different variants of not like the F-35 variant, but more of maybe some common platforms for different missions uh, that you could put different things on it. Maybe this is a strike aircraft or this is, this one's intended purely for interdiction, or I've always been curious how this whole, the whole program would play out. I'm just skeptical that I, I just can't see another manned, another big six, six gen fighter F-35, all of our planes look the same. I just couldn't see another thing coming out of this that is exactly the same thing. I just, it just seemed crazy to me, given that the F-35 is where it's at and it's spending billions of dollars to do additional development and upgrades. So I'm extremely curious to see what this AOA looks like and, and what the requirements look like and what the requirements are for. Yeah, it's very intriguing. I, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what to think on this one. I'm curious too. I just know that I'm not going to get access to any of that documentation. No. <laughs> so you just have to wait to see what, <laughs> what comes out of the whole thing. But yeah, I'm with you. That was my hope and expectation, the way Will Roper had been talking. It will just see if the program drifts from that. Or I don't think any of the people involved want to drift, but I'm sure like the system and approval and budget dollars 
will incentivize <laughs> them to, to drift on that. Yeah. I, but can you imagine right now with the Air Force introducing a brand new fighter program with Adam Smith saying what he's saying about F-35 and with the move to some of these unmanned platforms that the Air Force is playing around with? I, I just think it would be received like people just slap them off the stage if they tried to do that. There's just no money in the budget for that. So it just, it just sounds... It sounds crazy to do anything super expensive beyond what they've already been budgeting for this in the, in the near future. But, but yeah, I guess we'll see. Yeah. Sounds like you're on the side of Elon Musk at that, that maybe it's a year ago now, Air Warfare Symposium, where he yeah, said I'm... that that caused a big stir. And <laughs> we'll see what everyone has to say about that. But actually, let's stick with the fighter world for now. Sustainment becoming most profitable part of F-35 for Lockheed Martin from Air Force Magazine. Quote, sustainment will eclipse both F-35 production and development profitability, though he said the development of advanced versions of the fighter is proving, quote, a pleasant surprise for us, along with <laughs> the need to retrofit earlier versions of the aircraft. It might be a pleasant surprise for Lockheed and their shareholders, but it might be an unpleasant surprise for DOD and the taxpayer. I, I have to say, whenever I see these stock analyst uh, you know reports it's just, they're hard to read because you're yeah exactly you're, oh boy this is like not this is not at all what we want for national security like this does not this does not contribute to national security the way that you hear like the the positive messaging so yeah this we i think already saw this coming as you have more aircraft out there and as f-35 production the cost stabilized by now development i mean most of the block three stuff is laying flat so now they're moving on to block four so i think sustainment was always going to eclipse this i don't think that's like a big surprise i think it's weird to say it's a pleasant yeah. surprise but i think more it's the fact that we've known sustain was going to be really expensive and we've been trying to find ways of, of tackling it pbl is not the whole pbl contract is not a new thing that was talked that's been talked about for probably uh, almost 10 years. And I think it's finally, though, what maybe is happening is Lockheed is finally recognizing that they're, the numbers that the Air Force was planning to buy, given the sustainment cost where they're at, is this a no-go, right? The GAO even said that, that there's no way the Air Force could afford that. So this is going to drive Lockheed to be, I think, for the first time, to really sharpen their pencils. And there are some good things in the PBL construct. I think the long-term agreements and some of the things you can do to really drive down costs are good, but it just has to be done in a way that is smart for the government. And because once you lock yourself into that, as the C-17 program kind of learned, you, you can easily have runaway costs. And so the government really needs to understand and have access to the data and, and be able to monitor and manage that pro properly, I think, to, to do this right. And so hopefully Lockheed will... Now that they see, now that they see where things are going and that they're acknowledging it's inefficient, hopefully they'll sharpen their pencils and actually work with the government here. One of the recent news, of course, is that I've seen it in a couple of ways: thirty-two between thirty-two thousand and thirty-six thousand dollars per flying hour is the cost for an F-5A. No one, I can, I will not, I can never find anyone quoting an F-35B or C model cost per flying hour because I'm sure it's astronomical. But at least for the A. It seems to be trending in the right direction, down from 67 to mm -hmm. 44, now to into the 30s, 25 by 25. We'll see. Yeah, that's it is encouraging that's coming down. But I think there's, yeah, the other costs that, that, that roll into the sustained budget, I think will have to be looked at in totality. Uh, so last part on the F-35 here, Project Fox brings computer tablets to FL fighter cockpits from the drive. Quote, 
Until now, although F-35 pilots regularly fly with a tablet on their knees, these haven't been fully integrated with the cockpit and were not able to be physically plugged into the jet and receive real-time data from its own mission computers and its hugely powerful sensor suite. So it's not really clear to me exactly how much of the F-5's cockpit interface this tablet will replace, but we do know it's meeting some of the surface-to-air threats, the CAD, the suppression of enemy air defenses. What's your thought there? I guess it's going to be deployed with Block 4, and they'll see if they can retrofit some of the earlier ones with it as well. Yeah, I always like the idea of having a combat app store where different enterprising pilots or mission support people can can develop things that, that there's a need for without maybe having to go do some big formal contract. So I, 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 I have to get on board with that, but I do think it's really unfortunate. And I think it was actually the B1 that started this one because, or the U2 actually, yeah, the U2 had an issue where they had data that was on their offboard sensors, but they actually could not see it when they were in the plane. And so some enterprising pilots got together and they did their own little initiative where they found a way to get it into the cockpit and they used iPads to, to basically show that data. And it was extremely helpful for them in the mission. So I think they may have been a little bit of the inspiration for some of this, but for the U2, I understood because I mean, that plane has been around forever for the F-35 though, the whole situational awareness, the whole idea why we spend so much on the helmets and all of the, uh, the visual aid systems and the aircraft, we spent probably, you know, billions of dollars on, on, on that. And I think for us to have to add an iPad to that is really a shame. So at the same time, while I have, I feel like I have to support this idea of F-35 pilots being able to, to download, you know, apps that, that, that help them is a good thing. And it sounds like there's like a good reception for this. Sounds like the users like it, but it is a shame that you have this whole big user display that was intended to provide all the data you would need. And, and you can't use that for some of these, for some of these missions or some of these capabilities. So hopefully with block four, they'll roll in some of that. So they're not having to do as much on the iPad, but, but yeah, kind of mixed feelings about this one. Yeah. By the way, it, I just learned on tech refresh three of block four, they'll increase the FF's internal payload from s- four to six, um, AMRAMs, which is interesting, but I want to, I guess I'm not as down on, <laughs> on the tablet thing. This article here said, quote, they're pointing to quote, the apparent high degree of latency and in information reaching the helmet which has also been compared unfavorably to the traditional heads-up display, which is not a great sign. But I guess we spent a bunch of money on it, or not we, the royal we, right? The Department of Defense <laughs> spent a bunch of money on it. I guess that's one of the problems, right? This obsolescence is like, if you built it to that specification, that's just what it is. Maybe the iPad is a better way of doing it just because you have the ability for that. That's a commercial thing. It works with a lot of other... It already is interoperable with a lot of other things that are working and that will be upgraded over time as well and can stay fresh rather than I'm just fixed with the thing that I built in 2007. So maybe yeah. maybe the failure yeah, of the performance improvement. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I, I would like to hear the business case for, for, I would like to hear more from the pilots on, is this app, is this using the iPad so useful, more useful than your than the helmet with all of the features that it's supposed to have and, and be able to visualize and show is, is, is are, would they be happy with just the tablet and maybe they can, maybe they don't have to need the super expensive helmets. I, I don't know. I, I think there's a lot more information you have to have there, but I'd be curious their perspective on that. Yeah. We did hear about a little bit about information overload. I, 
I just don't think in the early 2000s, there was the same level of understanding of user-centered design as we have today. And <laughs> that's what it just is what it is not like a knock on Lockheed or the F-35 program office. It's just that was 2000s technology and they did the best they could with that at the time. <laughs> Yeah. And, and I think the, the, this fighter was designed for the next generation. I think the digital natives, and I think those there's more of those pilots coming on board now. And so I think they'll have a whole different perspective on how they like to see the data when they need to see the data. And one of the things about the F-35 that I don't think people realize is that it really does fly itself. Some of the other platforms require a lot more hands-on. So the F-35 does give the pilots a lot more time to, to be able to look and, and analyze and assess things without having to, you know, worry about something happening with the, with the aircraft. Yeah. So maybe as more and more pilots come on board and we get different new generations and they'll find different ways of getting the information the way that works best for them. And yeah, maybe it's a helmet, maybe it's some other things. Yeah. It, it, I was actually a little bit surprised on that point is like the touch screen doesn't have any tactile feel or yeah. feedback. And I was just like, <sighs> man, I, in my recollection, like the F-16 and the f 15 they got like all these buttons on like the stick and i guess in the f-35 it must be flying itself if you're like taking your hands off and you're just like pushing all these buttons on i like this on this tablet but i'm sure i'm sure they also have the tablets flying in f-16s and f-15s so i don't know maybe i don't know if they do they it, definitely what, have knee boards but i don't know if they have the do they have the do they have the ipads i don't know i just remember the the rajah story of DIU where he was just like, I'm an F-16 pilot. And I had to bring this laptop in with commercial navigation software. And I just put it on my knees and, oh, wow. and I flew that way. And that was like one of the big stories ahead of, of DIU where he's I reckon like he was being innovative for just like grabbing that software and just pulling in the cockpit with him. Huh? No, I hadn't heard that story. That's crazy. Uh, I mean, that's so, a, not a lot of room on the F-16 either. So that's pretty Yeah, good. definitely not. <laughs> so the next one here, submarine industrial base under strain as Virginia class parts weapon out early implications for Columbia class. I must've just written that wrong because it's wear out early, not weapon out early. So I'm going to need to update <laughs> that headline, but that's from USNI news quote. The Navy has found engineering analysis from 20 years ago. Isn't holding up compared to actual attack <laughs> boat performance in the fleet. Surprise. I was like, thanks. Thank you, captain. Obvious, <laughs> but it's funny that we still build things in that way where it's just, oh, we're going to build something for multi-decades and this baseline is just going to like this engineering specification detailed design is going to be exactly how it's going to perform before we build it. <laughs> so it's not surprising that it happened, but. I was a little surprised that, that they didn't know this before now. Like I, I thought that is it, is this problem just coming to, to light now or like. Well, I think it's like also the with analysis also, was 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah, they should have known. And they've done actually a lot of interesting things, like apparently put Xbox game, like joysticks into the. I heard that. Yeah. yeah. But then I'll just give a quote here because it's also as the Columbia class starts ramping up and they're also still buying the, the Virginia class. So like procurement is competing with the readiness level of just getting the submarines back out. Oh, and that's actually what the quote was basically saying. There's that competition, the opportunity cost between the procurement and, and the operations. Yeah. And it's pretty interesting that to say here, we've got to make sure that these electronic systems are well-stocked end quote, so that components failures don't cause maintenance and operational disruption. So it does seem like a lot of it is electronic stuff. It's not like I'm replacing the hull right? or like major elements of the hardware systems. I guess it is 
but mostly electronics. And that seems to make sense. And what really concerned me there was they said they were maximizing the use of COTS. And so like somehow we're still stuck with sole source suppliers and really long lead times. So apparently COTS only works if I guess they're saying we just need to stock up on that stuff when we buy it initially. I think that's a bad answer, right? Shouldn't the answer be if I'm buying COTS, it should be adaptable and replaceable to maintain whatever the COTS is that's being serviced now in in the market rather than I had this baseline 20 years ago. I just needed to have bought enough of those COTS. What's the point of COTS if that's their strategy? Yeah, I guess what I don't know is, yeah, there's a lot of information here that'd be helpful to understand this problem better. But one is if they are COTS electronic systems, maybe they're not up to the military rigorously shake and bake standards. So maybe that's why Maybe that's why they're failing more. And yeah, well stock. Typically, if you military component, if it was failing a lot, you wouldn't just buy more of them. This kind of goes to the whole like A sub O operational availability kind of thing where you know you prefer to solve operational availability by increasing the time between repairs, not just having a ton of spares to make your repair time shorter. Yeah, it, it's interesting. If it's just COTS electronic systems and they're fairly inexpensive and you just have to buy more of them in advance because the supplier is not able to keep up with the demand, then maybe this isn't such a big deal. But it sounds like, it sounds to me like if that was the issue, it wouldn't actually be causing this big of an impact. And in like engineering analysis on COTS systems, is that is that something that's typically done for reliability on some COTS electronic systems? So I don't know. I'm a little bit confused about the whole problem here. And it sounds like, it sounds to me like it has to be more than electronics, but maybe I'm wrong there. It's, yeah. It sounds like bringing in a sub for repairs it has to be more than just like replacing some COTS electronic units. But yeah, that's, they didn't, but that was the only thing that they talked about. In, I know, in, yeah. Like I was trying to like, see, do you have any specifics here? And we got to make sure these electronic six systems are well-stocked. They're not like saying like, I need a bunch of, a bunch more repair parts for my propulsion system. Right. So I, I'm not really sure exactly, but I'm sure it's more than just electronics too. That's yeah. probably the one that was just at the top of his mind. Maybe he just had a meeting on that. <laughs> so that's <laughs> what kind of came to his head at the moment. But yeah. The fact that he said it means I'm sure there's an element to that. I'm sure um, we'll read a GAO report on this in the near future now that this is so. <laughs> well, yeah, the GAO has been hammering them on time to re- time for downtime for maintenance of submarines. And like, they're all missing their windows and they're all going much longer than planned. And that's just also part of the organic industrial base in terms of maintenance for, for the Navy. They just have four yards. Something's going to have to break in terms of, they just need to make those infrastructure investments, I think. And especially if you want to have a scalable force, let's just say you have to reach a higher op tempo where you do scale up some of your shipbuilding somehow, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? How are you going to keep them maintained? <laughs> I have no idea. Like if they're having this much trouble in peacetime, once you move up, it, it seems like it's going to be really hard. But then they had the PSYOP plan, right? The shipyard infrastructure optimization plan. I think that's what it's called. But they're like looking at $3 billion over 10 years or something. And that sounded like too much money. I'm just like, $3 billion yeah. is not too much money. Yeah. Like you've got to make these investments. Yeah, I've, I've been reading the, rereading the book, Freedom's Forge, about how the, during World War II, where they stood up all these shipyards, like literally in like months and were able to start like churning out these Liberty ships and other types of uh, types of ships. And it's just impressive how fast they were able to do that. 
and get the money, get it to the right event, get it to the right people and, and get this stuff going. And sometimes it just seems like for us to make even minor upgrades to some of these, some of this infrastructure stuff is just such a burden and nobody wants to support it because it's not a capability. And yeah, it's really short-term thinking. I hope we get our act together on that because I feel like it's not just shipyards. I feel like there's a lot of infrastructure across in the entire of DOD that we just don't do enough modernization of and keeping up with the latest and greatest manufacturing methodologies and all this stuff that the commercial sector is probably doing. And yeah, sometimes we just need to make those investments. But Yeah, there was a recent hearing. I didn't listen to it, but <laughs> it was on uh, the organic industrial base and they had folks from each of, of the services come and talk. And the army has their own kind of ambitious plan that's been chronically underfunded. Yeah. And so yeah, again, that's just our output-oriented uh, budgeting system. We want F-35s and carriers and nuclear submarines. And it's like all the infrastructure and all the tooling, all the stuff that goes into building that is just like uniquely funded through those programs and everything becomes a stovepipe. And we just don't think about if it was up to the guys that who created stronger and better electronic microscopes, they did biologists great service. Biologists on themselves by themselves would have gotten nowhere. They never would have got the funding. If you're like, yeah, I have this project and I, but I want to spend 10, 10 million of the 20 million on developing a new microscope. They would have, they probably wouldn't have funded it. Yeah, you're right. That's, you need to change our mindset there. All right. Next one here is a cyber tool that started at DARPA moves to cyber command C4SIR net. Project Ike will be used to map networks, assess the netty readiness level of cyber teams and command forces in cyberspace, with Ike serving as the baseline architecture for JCC2, or Joint Cyber Command and Control, 2-6 Labs, the performer here, envisions JCC2 as an app-based model orchestration platform in which a user can access all types of information and data feeds from a single dashboard to provide better situational awareness and decision aids for commanders. That same information require multiple systems today. So Cyber Command is basically standing its, up its own JADC2 of sorts. It is what it feels like, right? There's the exact same problems of command and control popping up across the forces in, in Cyber Command. Some people actually say we need like a cyber force, just like we need the space force. Yeah. They're, they're going on with their own with their own C2. And they also have a unified platform, uh, which they've been working on for several years. And it wasn't really clear to me how integrated or how separate that was from a lot of the other services efforts. But I guess it was its own kind of unified platform. And now they're going to probably build on top of that with uh, Project Ike. So any quick thoughts there? Yeah, I think I think Cyber Command's done a pretty good job. There, there is a joint cyber like warfighting architecture that the different programs are supposed to play into. Unified pat platform provides some of the capabilities. JCC2 provides some of the capabilities. JCAP is another program. And actually all three of them are using the software pathway as of a couple of months ago. So I think there's they're I think they're doing it right, actually. They're gonna they're gonna have to be careful about how they pull integrate this in a way that doesn't squeeze some of the capability where you know in the process of integrating it you don't lose some of the value that was done in by each of these programs specializing in their own way so i think there's a kind of a challenge there for cyber command and how they pull all this together into an integrated capability but i think the the joint capability of warfighting architecture is something that's been developed it's i think it's being iterated on 
And yeah, I think this actually is a, they're pulling in some new tools. So Project Dike adds to that suite of capabilities. And I think Cyber Command will probably be in a pretty good place to be a work fighting responsive capability where if there is a need for a cyber effect, they will have all these tools at their disposal. They'll have the ability to you know, pull the command control people, people orders together and get them out to the right places. And they'll have places where decision makers can see what's going on and make real-time decisions. So I think, yeah, I think this is a really promising thing. And the fact they're using agile software, I think it bodes well for, for their ability to be responsive too. Yeah, it would be cool. Cyber Command and SOCOM, they have their own kind of like acquisition authorities. I think it would be interesting to start expanding that model. And maybe it doesn't look exactly the same, whether they're doing just like this mission integration of different systems for Indopaycom, for example, or whether they just have their own procurement budgets, right? And you start taking some of that procurement decision out of the acquisition folks' hands who have no responsibility for actually performing with that stuff and they just throw it over. It would just be interesting to mess. I don't want to say mess, but experiment with that model a little bit. It, you know, take some of those lessons and see where you can push them further. Yeah. Well, just quickly touch on CMMC again, because it's been a recurring <laughs> theme here, because there's always something going on with CMMC, right? New bottlenecks emerge in DOD's contractor cybersecurity program concerning assessors from FedScoop. Quote, companies in line to become certified assessors of the Department of Defense's supply chain cybersecurity program are facing a new roadblock, getting and passing uh, assessment of their own. Four people familiar with the model or with the matter who asked not to be named said they were also told initial audits were difficult and taking longer than expected. I guess it's just tricky here. Again, you have to like, one of the issues is you have to not just show that you're following the policies, but that you've been living up to the policies and not really sure exactly what that means, but it seems like when I read through a lot of their things and a lot of it is just like having this policy in place and making sure that it works or something like that. It's just, it's, it just seems like, how do you evaluate some of that stuff? Whether not just like that, I've written a document and said, this is our policy, but like that we actually embody that policy in our practices. I guess that's where some of the subjectivity is coming from. And if they're going to get to evaluate 300,000 suppliers is the estimate there. This yeah. roadblock early on is going to reduce the number of people that can assess. And that's going to just stretch out these timelines. And they already had a pretty you know, long timeline. It feels like five years to start getting this really underway. So this could be another thing. And how long could it stretch out is, I guess, anyone's guess. Yeah, it looks like, yeah, five years until all contracts have to... All have, new contracts, uh, right? All, it's yeah, just, it's just all new, new contracts, contracts coming out because they have the pathfinders that they've been doing, but I don't think they're going to retroactively go and change every existing contract. I guess within five years, most existing contracts would have already turned over. Yeah, unless they're... It depends on how you consider like a new contract. If you exercise like an option, is that a new contract? I, I just feel like overall with this whole, whole CMMC is every time there's an update, it feels like something is growing. Like it's like the, the demand or the requirement is growing. So I remember when it first was came out, they, everyone, most everybody that, that was in the know said, no, 90, like 90% of the companies that will need to comply will be at the level one. We're just trying to get some very basic cyber hygiene. And then by now I feel like it started, it's grown to now they're, now they're saying the assessors need to be at level three. I don't know if people appreciate it, but level three it's a significant burden. There's a significant amount of requirements and it's not very simple. So yeah, then you throw on top of what you said, 
now they have to show that they've that they've integrated this into their their business processes and that it's part of their day to day. Like, how do you yeah how do you do that? So that seems to me like a growth in in in, in meeting this mandate. And then yeah, trying to now that you're going to have to be level three, how are you going to get after three hundred thousand contractors? It just seems like there's so many delays, potential delays and burdens along the way that this is just, this gets getting messier and messier. So I'm very pessimistic about this. (laughs) It's just, I don't know. Every time I want to see something really promising, yay, we figured out, we found a way to reduce the burden and make this easy and 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 meet the intent. But I don't know. Every time I look at a new article, more disheartened. Yeah. It just seems like the people problem is going to be hard. If I'm an assessor, I'm going to, if I got approved now, like I'm just going to staff up like as many people as I can. And then they've been promising pretty low fees, but like, how is that going to cover a lot of costs? And who are these people that I'm going to be staffing up with super fast to go do all this stuff? And how do I train them, right? Correctly. It's just, it just seems, and then what's the level of turn and attrition that you're going to experience? And yeah, there's just a lot of questions. (laughs) So we'll get off the CMMC negativity here and go to our last one which I think has some pros and some cons in terms of some of our debates in the past. But Putin's A-10, why Russia is doubling down on its SI frog foot from national interest. In the fall of 2015, Russia deployed a dozen modernized SMs in support of the Syrian government, Bashar al-Assad. Many observers noted that the aircraft involved in the mission, the SIs were best adapted for close air support role. And then there's another little bit here that they didn't even really bring into that discussion, but they say significant losses suffered by the SU-25 demonstrate that without effective air defense suppression and electronic countermeasures, low and slow ground support planes are poised to take heavy losses. It's okay. On the one hand, we have a non-survivable aircraft, but when it gets it into a theater and it's actually deployed and it's not shot down, it can do some damage. <laughs> and <laughs> Russia's doubling down. I usually like to look at other countries and be like, okay, they're doing it. Then there's also, it like validates some thinking behind like why we should or shouldn't do something. But so I think this is like a mixed message on the A-10 or some kind of comparable airplane, maybe light, the light attack aircraft or something to follow. So <laughs> I wonder, like you bring the bring up this and a lot of Air Force people bring up like, exactly what they're saying, right? Got a low and slow close air support aircraft. It's going to take losses from modern technologies. What are you thinking? Should should America look at this and say, yeah, maybe the A-10 has some legs in it, or should they just be like, man, these guys are just doubling down because they don't have an alternative? Yeah, I've, I'm like a lover and a hater of the A-10 a little bit because I think it it performs its mission that it was designed for extremely well. The Army ground forces almost to a person seems to seem to love it. And I think a lot of that is just due to the fact that it can be seen. It has like the weapons that are probably the best for achieving the effects that, that it, they need to be, need to be done without causing a lot of other issues. In most of the Afghanistan, Iraq scenarios where army, army forces required support, most of those close air support missions or most of those actions were actually taken by bomber aircraft like B1s and B52s and F16s and F15s and, and less of the A10 because they were faster to get to be able to respond and they did have highly precise bombs but yeah they probably were not the best it probably was not like a you, you using a scalpel to, to the operation because they would drop 
500 pound JDAMs or 200 pound JDAMs to take out a few, a few Taliban or something. And so that, is that the best? No, it was probably a lot. It probably would have been better to have an A-10 right there to this, use its gun and take out, take out that, take those guys out. But so I think it's one of those things where it's a trade-off. It's yes, it is probably, it's the best for that role. If you're in a permissive environment, you don't have any threats from surface air missiles. And if you happen to be in the target area where the support is needed, if you're in a big country, I just think the A-10 becomes impractical. If you're in a if you're in a big country that has some surface air capability, I just think it becomes a really tough aircraft to continue to operate because you're just not going to be able to get to the forces in time. And maybe they get, maybe they get killed because you weren't able to get there fast enough. And yeah, then maybe you're just taking too many, you're just losing too many planes. So I don't know. It's a, it's a tough one. I think that when we look, when we get to the global power competition discussion, we get out of Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria, there's this new place for the A-10 in the China fight. There's no place for the A-10 in the, in the Russia fight that I can see. So that's, I guess, where we're at. And there's Matt's thesis on the A-10. I think that's pretty standard, right? I think that's how a lot of people think about it. Because the only thing keeping the A-10 alive seems to be a small cohort in Congress. <laughs> Congress loves the thing <laughs> for one reason or another. And we can always look at Congress as either being a savior of capabilities or as like the destroyer of making it to the new world. But A-10 obviously has important capabilities. I've always thought, especially in a degraded environment, maybe it works out. Maybe it's like one of those things you want to have in your back pocket when push comes to shove. But they're re-winging it right now. I think they're doing yeah. it incredibly slow. So maybe that's just the capability you need and give it to the National Guard. It is a low-cost airplane. That is one of the things where it's probably, it is probably one of those things you could just keep in your hip pocket, keep a, keep a couple hundred of them. And if you need them for some of these lower end missions, you have that capability. There's a lot of, I will say there's a lot of sustainment issues with them in terms of like how the frames are need to be repaired. And it's, it's more than just wings. There's a lot of other stuff, but, but yeah, maybe the air force will, will do what we did with the self fighter. I don't think most people realize, but we still have F-117s mothballed, but we keep them alive just in case we might need them. So maybe we'll do some with the A-10s. We keep them, keep them available. Don't spend a lot of money on them. Yeah, that was one thing I, I remember learning from Freedom's Forge is that I think they invented cellophane so that they could wrap up equipment and send it up by sea. Oh, yeah. So it, it was resistant to being rusted Perfect. from, from yeah. salt from salt water. So yeah. there's always like a random interesting story of how these things have actually gotten invented. <laughs> yeah. So that's it for this week. And thanks again, Matt, for, for joining us. And we'll talk to sure. you next time. Thanks, Eric.